All right, good to see everybody this morning. Um, I really appreciated Pastor Mike's message. I was able to listen to it online. Um, so if you were here last week, I'm sure you were blessed as well. Uh, I knew that he would bring a good word for Sanctity of Human Life Sunday because I know that the work of the Crisis Pregnancy Center there in Dover is near and dear to his heart. Um, but also, I knew it would be good just because he takes the Word of God seriously in all of life and lives it out. Uh, love that guy. Um, if I lived in Smyrna or Dover, I'd be a member at Trinity. So if any of you moved down there, you got a church um, to go to. So we started out this new year with a word from the Word on the Word. Did you follow that? Word from the Word on the Word. In Psalm 19, Pastor Tyler uh, preached on Psalm 19, and oh, how we need God's Word. Let's let this orient us as we walk through this new year. Um, in Psalm 19, it's clear it's more valuable than money, God's Word is, and it's sweeter than honey. And that rhymes, so it'll help you remember it, okay? And we looked at Psalm 46 and how God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. So the Yahweh of hosts, the commander of the armies of heaven and earth, is with us. He's near. He's transcendently great, but he's with us, and he's near. And the God of Jacob, that deceitful skunk who God was merciful to, is our fortress. He's our strong tower and our refuge and protection. So the greatness of his greatness makes the goodness of his goodness that much better. And now, for this week and the next two weeks, three weeks total, we're going to be walking through our values. So a, a refresh on our values, the importance of our values. We usually do this on about an annual basis. And then after that, we're going to be heading into Ephesians for the next few months, okay? So, okay, Bethel folks, if you call Bethel your church home, what are our three values? Gospel, community, mission, okay? So this time through... We've done this lots of times over the years, but this time through, we're going to look at each of those values in relation to prayer. So the gospel and prayer, community and prayer, and mission and prayer. We'll put that first slide up here. So, first slide, the one that says gospel and prayer and then justification underneath. You have that one? No. Okay. Um, We'll skip that. All right. So if you prefer alliteration, for those of you here, we're here last week, you could say, anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay. Conversion and deliverance, community and dependence, and commission and dynamism. Yeah. See, that's why I don't alliterate, because Mike is better at it than me. Okay. If you didn't get that, you weren't here last week, don't ma it doesn't matter. Okay. So when we talk about our values, gospel, community, and mission, I want you to think about it in two ways. They are both actual and aspirational. Okay? Hey, there's a little more alliteration. Um, so, actual, these things are true of us. We love Jesus here. Gospel. We love each other here. Community. We love the lost. People who need Jesus. Mission. But, we also recognize that this is not true enough about Bethel. We need to grow. So we are prone to wander, to put other things at the center and displace Jesus. We also struggle to love one another, don't we? It's hard times. 
And we can be indifferent to lost neighbors and even to the nations that need to hear about Jesus. So our values are not only actual, and praise God that they are, but they're also aspirational. God is at work. These kingdom priorities are present among us, but we need to grow. We should want to grow. We should welcome the growth that God wants to produce in us. And this is what should characterize us more and more as we head into the future with God. So how is it, in the ways that we need to grow, how do these aspirations become actual? How do they become realized, true of us? Through prayer, right? So this week, we're looking at the first and most foundational value, the gospel. And so you could think about it this way. The gospel is the treasure in the field. You know, Matthew 13. Prayer is the shovel. The gospel is the pearl of great price. Prayer is the scuba gear. Right, Jose? (laughs) He's got some scuba gear. Um, He's a good teacher, too. The gospel is the food in the fridge. Prayer is the hands and feet where you got to get up and go get some to feed your soul. So as we get started on this theme... Okay, gospel and prayer, just know in advance that you're going to face some opposition. Gospel and prayer, community and prayer, mission and prayer. And I don't just mean opposition on Sunday mornings as we study these themes, but also in the week as you apply God's Word. So it's going to be internal, right? Prayer. I'm too busy. I'm too easily distracted. I feel like my prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling. Does prayer really make any difference? Hasn't seemed to make much difference in the past. Right? So there can be internal opposition to the application of what we're studying this morning. But also we need to know we're in enemy territory. Okay? You've got an enemy of your souls who wants to keep you from your knees. Samuel Chadwick once said, Satan dreads prayer. His one concern is to keep the saints from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, he mocks our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. Or if you're familiar with C.S. Lewis and the screw tape letters, you know, it's kind of like this it's fictional book where he's writing as if he's a senior devil writing to a a junior devil on how to tempt and destroy the faith of of Christians. And so it kind of helps you think, like, here's the schemes of the devil. This is how he works. And so Lewis said this, you know, Screwtape is the senior devil to his nephew Wormwood. He said, keep the patient from serious intention of praying altogether. So think about it. If you were the devil... What would you do to you in regard to dependence on God? Like to keep you from that. If you were the devil, what would you do to you in regard to prayer? You would certainly try to multiply reasons not to pray, right? Like, again, you don't have time. Too distractible. Flannery O'Connor once wrote, my attention is always fugitive. Anybody resonate with that? It's pointless. You can get more done without praying. I got too much to do. 
Or if he can't keep you from praying, he'll subtly work to move your prayers to being more mechanical and formulaic rather than relational in dependence on your heavenly Father who loves you. Or he'll work to puff you up in your pride over how spiritual you are because of your disciplined prayer. So if we're going to grow in grace and in Christ-likeness, if we're going to really love Jesus, if we're going to really love one another as we ought, if we're really going to love our neighbors, our lost neighbors who need to hear about Jesus, prayer is going to be key. And prayer is going to be key, not because it's powerful in and of itself. I hear, you know, probably we've said this, prayer is powerful. Well, yes, it is, but why is it powerful? It's not powerful in and of itself. It's powerful because of the one to whom we pray. He's powerful. So prayer is only going to be key because, prayer is key because that's the only way we're going to tap into God's power because we need to grow by his grace and his help. So brothers and sisters, let's ask so that we receive. Let's seek so that we find. Let's knock so that the door will be open to us. So our primary text this morning is Luke 18, 9 to 14. Okay, Tyler read the first parable and then the parable that we're going to focus on. But I want us to begin here, the first point on the outline, is by, we're going to begin by looking at a really important phrase um, in the Bible that refers to prayer, and it's the phrase of calling on the Lord, okay, calling on the name of the Lord. So it begins all the way back in Genesis 4, okay? So Cain murdered his brother Abel. He was jealous And then Adam and Eve had Seth. And then it says this in Genesis 4.26. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And then it says this. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Or if you skip ahead to Genesis 12, you'll see that God called Abram to follow him. And then Abram called on the name of the Lord. So God called Abram. Abram calls on the Lord. Okay? Genesis 12, 1 to 8. Later on, Psalm 99 says this, Moses and Aaron were among Yahweh's priests. Samuel, also prophet, was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. Or we looked a few weeks ago at 1 Kings 18. In 1 Kings 18, 24, Elijah challenged the prophets of Baal, remember? And he said, okay, here's the deal. You call on the name of your God, Baal, and I'll call on the name of Yahweh, and whoever answers by fire, he is God. And then you fast forward to the book of Joel. We looked at that back in August in the Minor Prophets series. And Joel prophesies of the day when God is going to pour out his spirit on all people. So previously... The Spirit was poured out on prophets, priests, and kings to anoint them for their ministry. But what Joel is prophesying about, looking forward to, is the day when the Spirit will be poured out on all people, all kinds of people, from the lowest to the highest. And so in Joel 2.32, it says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And it was fulfilled at Pentecost, right? When the Spirit was poured out. So after Jesus rose from the grave, ascended to the Father, poured out the Spirit, okay, on his disciples, his apostles. 
and they spoke in tongues. And there's all these people from, you know, other places that spoke other languages. And here they are hearing the mighty works of God in their own language. So the Spirit was poured out in fulfillment of Joel 2. So some mocked those people, these disciples, saying, you know, that these tongue speakers were drunk. So Peter stands up and he says, no, they're not drunk. I mean, it's nine in the morning. Come on. This is the fulfillment of Joel 2. And then he quotes Joel 2, 28 to 32, and he ends with in Acts 2, 21, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so after they hear this sermon all about Jesus, who he is, what he's done, the crowd responds with, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter says, basically, in so many words, call upon the name of the Lord and you'll be saved. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So this is how the gospel becomes ours. You've got to call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. So the Christian life begins, at least from the perspective of our conscious experience, as the cry of our heart to God for deliverance because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. So it's so central, this language of calling upon the name of the Lord, it's so central to what it means to be a Christian that it's used almost as a description for Christians. Look at Acts 9, um, 20 and 21. It should be up on the screen here. So immediately, this is Saul of Tarsus. He's persecuting the church, and then he is confronted by the Lord Jesus on the Damascus Road, and he's converted, and then he starts to preach Jesus. And immediately, Saul proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He's the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Isn't this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem? Of those who called upon this name. He wreaked havoc among the Christians. And how do you describe the Christians? Well, they're the ones who call upon the name of Jesus. That's how they're described. Or in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2, right at the beginning of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, to the church of God that's in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus. So do you see how central this description is as far as who Christians are? One more passage, Romans 10. So you can follow along on the screens here. So Paul writes to the church in Rome. He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, his Jewish brothers and sisters, is that they would be saved, that they would really believe that Jesus is the true Messiah. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not a zeal according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness, which only comes through Christ. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And then down in verse 9, Paul writes, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. That's in Isaiah. 
For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches, see it there again, on all who call on him. For, and then Paul again quotes Joel 2, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So here's the point. The good news of the gospel, gospel means good news, is something that happened in history 2,000 years ago, outside of us, independent of us. The Son of God took on flesh and he came and he humbled himself and he lived and he taught and he did miracles and he suffered for us and he died for us and then he rose again. That's what happened. But it's out there in history. So how does it become ours? How does it become real to us? Well, I think this is a helpful thing that Al Mohler said a while ago. He said, most Americans believe that their major problem is something that happened to them and that their solution is to be found within. In other words, they believe that they have an alien problem, it's out here, that is to be resolved with an inner solution. If I can just you know, some self-help or figure out how to do this or, you know, find my inner light or align my third eye or I don't know, you know, whatever. I don't think you align your third eye. Maybe see with your third eye. Who knows? Um, but what the gospel says, however, is that we have an inner problem, sin, that demands an alien or an outside solution, a righteousness that is not our own. It needs to be provided for us by Jesus so that we can be made right with God. So we've got to call upon the name of the Lord in order to receive that righteousness to be saved. So if you do, you will be saved. We are saved by grace through faith, calling on the name of the Lord in Christ. We trust him as our Savior. So if any of you came into the service not yet a Christian, or you're watching online and you're not yet a Christian. Listen to Isaiah 55, 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. That's what repentance is, is you're walking away from the Lord. You turn and you walk to him, trusting in him. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And return to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. So if somebody asks you this week, are you ready for this question? If somebody asks you this week, how do you become a Christian? Do you know how to answer that question? What would you say? I mean, there's, you could probably articulate it a number of ways, right? But one way to answer that question is, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. <laughs> and let me tell you about the Lord Jesus and what he did. That's how the benefits of the gospel become ours. So let's look now at an illustration of what it looks like to call upon the name of the Lord from Luke 18, verses 9 to 14. And we're going to see prayer and justification. Okay? Point number two. So let's read it again here. Jesus also told this parable, Luke 18, verse 9. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves... They were confident in themselves, in their own righteousness, like they were good before God on the basis of their performance, spiritual, like their religiosity. 
He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So if you think, if you're confident in your own record, your own righteousness, well, you've done that and you're better than other people so you can look down on them. So two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And listen, if, if you grew up in the church, you know, oh, Pharisees, those are bad. They're hypocritical, whatever. Tax collectors, yeah, Jesus loved. No, no, no. First century, the Pharisees were the good guys. They were the really spiritual guys that everybody looked up to, and the tax collectors were the sellouts, the traitors. They exploited people for money. So you'd put the white hat on the Pharisee, the black hat on the tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Look, he's giving God the glory, right? Thank you, God. I'm not like other men. Really? Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. He's looking down on him with contempt. I fast twice a week. See where his confidence lies? I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven because he didn't think he was worthy. He beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Actually, in Greek, it's even stronger than that. It's God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I am the sinner. <laughs> I'm like, you know, the worst sinner I know. And actually, that word for merciful is not the typical word for mercy in the New Testament. It has atonement connotations. So God, I can't atone for my sins. You've got to atone for them for me. You've got to be merciful and cover my sins by your mercy. I'm a sinner. And so, Jesus, as I tell you, this man, the second one, the tax collector went down to his house justified right with God purely by mercy rather than the other for whoever exalts himself will be humbled but the one who humbles himself will be exalted so verse 13 God be merciful to me the sinner is a beautiful illustration a picture like a living parable of what it means what it looks like to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved Listen, God doesn't grade on a curve. The standard is not your other classmates. Like, as long as I'm more righteous than them, then I can feel like I'm okay and I'm going to make it in. It doesn't work that way. Because the standard is not your classmates. The standard is perfection. It's God's standard. It's His holiness, His righteousness. If it was relative righteousness, and, you know, you compared life to, like, a long jump, maybe you've heard this illustration before, you know, then there'd be some line where, you know, if you jump this far, you'd get into heaven, you know? Like your spiritual effort and your religiosity, you know, if you can jump at least 10 feet, the equivalent of 10 feet spiritually, you're in. And everybody that jumps shorter distance than you doesn't do as much, you know, doesn't tithe like you or fast like you, like this, you know, Pharisee, they're going to end up in hell. But in reality... The gulf between our sinfulness and God's holiness is like the Grand Canyon. 
the Grand Canyon for long jumpers, okay? So I don't know who the best long jumper is now, but I'm just remembering like Carl Lewis back in the day, you know? So does it really make a difference if somebody can jump 25 feet and you can only jump five feet? Both of you are going to end up at the bottom. The only way you can bridge that chasm is a miracle, and that's what the cross does, right? Jesus bridged that gap so that we can be justified, reconciled to God, our sins forgiven and atoned for and covered. So God, be merciful to me, the sinner. God, I need your atoning mercy and grace. I can't atone for my sins. I mean, so many people spend their whole lives trying to atone for their sins. But you can call upon the name of the Lord, humbly recognizing your need, and you will be saved because everyone who exalts himself, like that Pharisee, will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself before the Lord, like a little child, like the tax collector, will be exalted. I mean, just for what it's worth, notice the fact that treating others with contempt goes along with trusting in your own righteousness. So if you see the, the kind of noxious weed of treating others with contempt in your life, like I see it in my own heart sometimes, what's the problem? I'm actually focused on my own righteousness rather than focused on Jesus's righteousness for me. I'm thinking too highly of myself as if I'm better than anybody else. So we dare not forget the gospel. This is not just the beginning. This is the whole path. We're never any better than anyone else. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. God opposes the proud. Everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. God gives grace to the humble. So here's the, the key point that we need to remember. We who have called upon the name of the Lord need to see that we've got to continue in the same way we began. Okay, so point number three, continue how you began. So this is how you became a Christian, right? God be merciful to me, the sinner, by grace, through faith, in Jesus. It's how you begin your new life with Christ. But as we go along as Christians, isn't it easy to end up relating to God as if the gospel is not true? Like we feel more acceptable to God on our better days, better days, and less acceptable to him on our worst days. Maybe we feel like God barely puts up with us. And maybe you start to actually do stuff in order to stay in God's good graces or to try to earn his favor or something like that. That's what happened in Galatia. That's why Paul wrote to them with such urgent concern. So Galatians 3.1, he wrote this. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law, like your own works? Or did you receive the Spirit when you became a Christian, born again? Did you receive the Spirit by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now, by, now being perfected? by the flesh, by your own effort, by your own strength, on, on your own steam. 
So do you see we never grow beyond our need for the centrality of the gospel, the grace of God through Christ in our lives? The same way we began is how we continue. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus. We grow by grace through faith in Jesus. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples, John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. Or listen to what Paul wrote to the church in Rome right at the end, chapter 16, verses 25 to 27. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ to bring about the obedience of faith. We're strengthened according to the gospel by the preaching of Jesus Christ. It's not just the doorway to Christianity. It's the whole path. So how you begin is the pattern for how you continue all the way home. And so the regular rhythm of the Christian life could be summarized with a couple of alliterated phrases, okay? Dependence and delivery, desperation and deliverance. So last point, dependence and delivery, desperation and deliverance. So how many of you love delivery? Like especially during the last 10 months, you know? Food delivery, grocery delivery, Amazon delivery, Grubhub, you know, whatever. So I'm not a big food delivery person, but I am grateful for Amazon Prime. Amazing that stuff shows up the next day or whatever. We've taken advantage of grocery delivery from Aldi a couple times over the last 10 months. Excellence in delivery is a good thing. It's great. I mean, poor delivery can be a frustration too, right? Like the U.S. Postal Service over Christmas. Um, love the, I mean, it's amazing the system they have set up, so no uh, hate on the USPS. Okay, so <clears throat> talk about delivery. God is the one who delivers the goods. Ask and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. Those are Jesus' words, Matthew 7. But are any of you kind of like finding a little bit of hesitation or resistance cropping up like, well, yeah, but what about when I ask and I don't receive? What about when I seek and I don't find? What about when I knock and doesn't seem like the door ever opens. I mean, isn't it easy for cynicism to start to grow in your soul? And when it does, doesn't it choke out prayer? You start to think, like, what's the use? Or maybe you don't consciously say, what's the use? You just stop praying, except for maybe, you know, at mealtime. So Paul Miller actually a local guy, Philly guy. Um, great book on prayer called A Praying Life. Connecting with God in a distracting world. I would highly recommend it. And I'm going to quote from it extensively here because I think cynicism is like one of the most deadly dynamics when it comes to prayer, like prayer killers. And I think it's more prevalent than maybe we realize. And he addresses it so helpfully, honestly. Um, he devotes three chapters to it in the book. So he writes this, the opposite of a childlike spirit is a cynical spirit. 
And by the way, do you know what comes right after the parable of the tax collector and the publican, or the Pharisee and the tax collector? Is Jesus talking about the fact that if you're going to enter the kingdom, you need to receive it like a little child. So I think these themes are connected. So the opposite of a childlike spirit is a cynical spirit. Cynicism is increasingly the dominant spirit of our age. Personally, he's speaking personally, it's my greatest struggle in prayer. If I get an answer to prayer, sometimes I think, think it would have happened anyway. Anybody else ever do that? Other times I'll try to pray but wonder if it makes any difference. Many Christians stand at the edge of cynicism, struggling with a defeated weariness. Their spirits have begun to deaden. My friend Brian summarized it in this way. I think we have built up scar tissue from our frustrations and we don't want to expose ourselves anymore. You know, don't get your hopes up too much. Fear constrains us. So he goes on to talk about the fact that Satan is the father of cynicism, right? Think of his words in the garden. The picture that he painted of the character of God. He basically said, let me show you what's really going on. So Miller goes on and says this, cynicism begins with the wry assurance that everyone has an angle. Behind every silver lining is a cloud. The cynic is always observing, critiquing, but never engaged, loving and hoping. It protects you from crushing disappointment, but it paralyzes you from doing anything. A praying life is just the opposite. It engages evil. It doesn't take no for an answer. The psalmist was in God's face, hoping, dreaming, asking. Prayer is feisty, like that woman at the beginning of Luke 18. So if she got justice from that unjust judge, how much more will we if we ask and seek and knock and we don't give up? So cynicism, on the other hand, back to the quote, merely critiques. It is passive, cocooning itself from the passions of the great cosmic battle we are engaged in. It is without hope. And then he goes on to write that Jesus offers six cures for cynicism. So get the book, read them. It's worth it. I'll just list them off here, and I'm only going to focus on one of them here in a minute. So he says, be warm but wary. You know, Jesus said, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves far as our disposition walking through this life. It's not, you know, rose-colored glasses, but it's also not cynicism. So he says the feel of a praying life is cautious optimism because of confidence in God. So anyway, be warm but wary. Learn to hope again. Cultivate a childlike spirit. Cultivate a thankful heart. Cultivate repentance. Develop an eye for Jesus. Those are all worth reading, but I just want to zero in a little bit on this childlike spirit thing. So he under this number three, he begins by saying that he had this morning um, where he was really struggling with a cynical heart, and after explaining the way cynicism was like sucking the life out of him, he writes, what do I do with this heart of mine? And he answers his own question with this. Cry out for grace like a hungry child. As soon as I begin simply asking for help, I have become like a little child again. I've stopped becoming cynical. Oddly enough, my prayer is answered almost immediately because in the act of praying, I've become like a child. The cure for cynicism is to become like a little child again. 
And he goes on to tell of a time in his life when, you know, it was so difficult that, quote, I was unable to pray. I couldn't concentrate. So I stopped trying to have a coherent prayer time. And for weeks on end during my morning prayer time, I did nothing but pray through Psalm 23. I was fighting for my life. As I prayed through Psalm 23, I began to reflect on the previous day and to look for the shepherd's presence, for his touches of love. Even on especially hard days, I began to notice him everywhere. Both the child and the cynic walk through the valley of the shadow of death. The cynic focuses on the darkness. The child focuses on the shepherd. And then he includes this exercise that was really arresting. Cynicism blinds you to the presence of the good shepherd, right? Well, notice what's left in Psalm 23 when you remove the good shepherd and everything that he does. Okay? So take a look at Psalm 23 without the good shepherd. My, I shall want. Me. Me. My soul, me, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear evil. Me, me in the presence of my enemies. My head, my cup, me all the days of my life. I don't think we want to live cynical, do we? I don't want to live there where there's no shepherd. Well, Psalm 23 is true. We can trust him and call upon him and he will deliver dependence and delivery. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16 is wonderfully true. Since then, we have a great high priest. He mediates for us. He's passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, he's come down and he's gone back up and he intercedes for us. He mediates for us. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So gospel and prayer, dependence and delivery, we can come with confidence and we can expect to receive mercy and find grace to help us in our need. It doesn't mean it always comes on our timeline. It doesn't mean that it often comes on our timeline. And what comes is not always what you initially wanted. It's not always the way that you wanted it, but it is what you need and when you need it. Again, Jesus in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me. You can do nothing. So dependence and delivery, that is like the daily lub-dub rhythm of the Christian life. We are needy always, and God is gracious and merciful, and he is our help always. But there's also times of great need. Have you ever been desperate? 
Okay, I'm the only one. So I'll just preach this to myself because I need to hear it too. So I remember hearing, this is probably like almost 20 years ago, a pastor that I respect used the phrase desperation and deliverance as a description of his frequent experience in life and ministry. And it resonated. And the longer that I've lived, the more times I've felt desperate, but also the more times I've seen God deliver. I love Psalm 50, verse 15. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you glorify me. I like that arrangement. You like that arrangement? <laughs> God says, okay, you in trouble? You desperate? Call upon me. I'll deliver you. You get the help. I get the glory. Everybody's happy. Of course, he deserves it anyway, but he loves to deliver his people. Or how about when the Moabites and the Ammonites came to attack Jerusalem? Remember King Jehoshaphat? He knew they were toast if God doesn't come through for them. And what does he do? He called upon the name of the Lord. He cried out to the Lord. Second Chronicles 20, verse 12. I mean, this, like, they're just toast. There's no hope. So he goes before the Lord and he says, Oh, our God, will you not execute just judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that's coming against us. Total desperation. And then I love this. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. That also rhymes, which is helpful, right? We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Desperation and deliverance. So I don't know about you, but I've often gotten in over my head in life and in ministry. I don't know what to do, but I do know that I can cry out to God and he will hear me. I can call upon him in the day of trouble and he will deliver me and I can glorify him. Thank you. Like, isn't that beautiful? Listen to what's underneath that. There's willingness on God's part and there's ability. Or we put it the other way around. Of course there's ability, but there's also willingness. Sometimes that's the thing. We doubt his willingness. Well, of course he could, but it doesn't seem to have cynicism creeping in. I like to call it two-by-two two prayer, okay? Two things are key to our prayers, and they're based on two things in God. So, the first set of two, things ought to be different. Remember that widow? She needed justice. They ought to be different. And then, second thing, they can be different. You've got to believe that they ought to be different, and that they can be different. And then the other two, it's founded on the character of God. Can he do something about it? Is he willing to? Yes, and yes. He can, and he is willing. So I, I could tell some stories. I'm sure you, sh you could tell some stories. We need to tell some stories in our community groups. If you're not in a community group, you can visit one today or, you know, some other time. Look on the website. You can come visit ours. We're meeting today. Actually, there's like three community groups meeting today, so you could even just do musical community groups, you know, just grab some lunch and hear all the stories. Do you ever get overwhelmed? 
in over your head. What do you do? What are your patterns? Do you run to your refuge, your strength, your very present help in trouble? Or do you just fear and fret and freak out? Do you stew and rage? Do you eat and drink? Like to kind of comfort yourself and find some solace? Do you shop and buy? Do you scroll and scroll? Do you watch and watch? Try to out of sight, out of mind? Perhaps we need to hear the exhortation from the book of James. You do not have because you do not ask. So dependence and delivery, desperation and deliverance, that's the normal Christian life. Prayer is the fitting disposition of the soul when we are in touch with our need and in touch with the mercy and the help, the power of our Savior. He is able and he's willing to help us. So prayer is how the gospel sinks in. The benefits become ours. They change and shape us at the deepest parts of who we are and how we think and how we feel and how we see reality. Prayer is how God delivers the goods we need and delivers his desperate children. So I love this. Psalm 145, 18. Just, Lord, help us hear these words and believe them and may they be sweet to our souls. The Lord is near to all who call on him. To all who call on him in truth like with a humble, honest heart, not hypocritically, just trying to be impressive spiritually. And then he fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. So the gospel from the beginning and all the way through begets this posture of humility and need and dependence. From day one, we need help from outside. We need rescued. We need helped. We need saved. We need delivered. And that is the Christian's disposition and posture always. We never leave that posture. We never move beyond our need, our desperate need for the grace of God through Jesus. Apart from Jesus, we can not be saved. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. So we're going to close like we began. Chris had us kind of prayerfully read through Psalm 130 a call to wait on the Lord, to call upon the Lord, to trust in the Lord. And we're going to end by singing a song, I will wait for you. So if the musicians want to come on up, just listen to Isaiah 64, 4. This is the one that we pray to. This is the one that we call upon. The only true and living God and listen to his character from of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God like you who works for those who wait for him.